Matthew chapter 13 verses 31 and 32 Jesus told them another parable The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field although it is the smallest of all seeds yet when it grows it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so the birds come and perch in its branches The parable of the mustard seed is only two sentences long, yet, with this short illustration, Jesus paints a grand vision of what God's community is like. It is like a seed, he says, the smallest seed his followers would have known about in Mediterranean agriculture. Jesus says that someone has intentionally planted this tiny seed in their field, and then, with a mix of organic mystery and the farmer's care, it grows and grows, and one day it becomes a large tree, large enough that it can offer shelter to the creatures that find it, its full branches extending to welcome the community of God's creation. What a beautiful and hopeful picture of God's kingdom of the community where God reigns with love and justice and compassion and truth. Something that begins so small and yet will become large, not to show off its size and strength and accomplishment, but so those in need can find hospitality and rest within it. The tree of God's community has a posture of humility and service for those who are seen as the least among us. The parable of God's kingdom reminds me of a community in Ireland, a place called Glendala, where we'll meet today's saint, Kevin. During my week-long pilgrimage in Ireland, the last stop on our itinerary was the old monastic city of Glendala, about an hour south of Dublin. There's a 19-mile path known as St. Kevin's Way that follows the footsteps Kevin would have taken nearly 1,500 years ago, descending into a quiet valley with two lakes nestled among breathtaking mountains. Today, many visitors still choose to enter Glendala by foot, taking a full day to walk this pilgrimage path. I invite you to join me in imagining this route into Glendala now. For hours on the trail, we might hear nothing but the sounds of birds and woodland creatures, wind, rain, rustling trees, and the steady beat of our footsteps. We'd follow the rocky path as it weaves through the mountain gap, our legs getting tired and our feet sore. As we make our way down the valley, the trees around us change from pine at the top of the pass to birch, oak, and ash at the bottom. 
and the slow but steady drizzle of rain makes the air feel colder than it actually is. We march across creeks and marches, rounding bend after bend, our eyes strain for a rooftop or a column of smoke from an end to indicate that our de destination is approaching. Then, at the bottom of our descent into the majestic valley, we turn around one more bend and spot a towering monument in the sky. It's the hundred-foot round tower in the center of the old city's ruins. It's a beacon of hospitality promising a roaring fire and a seat around a table where a bowl of lamb stew and soda bread awaits. It's easy to imagine other bands of weary travelers many centuries ago turning this same bend and spotting the same stone tower that welcomed them to a place of rest and security in this wild land. The round tower, along with the extensive remains of other stone buildings and churches that you'd encounter today at Glendala, were built about a thousand years ago. Walking among them, touching the cold carved blocks, it feels like you are stepping back in time. But as old as they are, these ruins were actually built about 500 years after Kevin lived there. In his day, the buildings would have probably been rustic, beehive-shaped dwellings or perhaps simple wooden structures. Kevin was born sometime around 500 AD to a wealthy and noble family. He was known for being gentle, sincere, and according to the stories, very handsome. He was a person of deep faith, and he longed for a life of solitude and prayer. As a young man, he left the comforts and privileges of his wealthy family to follow God's Spirit into the mountains. In his years wandering, he spent weeks and months in worship and prayer and fasting, Eventually, he settled in the valley at Glendala. He lived in little caves formed out of the rocky cliffs overlooking the serene lower lake, befriending the animals who were his companions. Left to his own volition, Kevin would have spent his whole life in prayerful solitude. However, he developed a reputation for wisdom and faith that drew people to him. People came from near and far to seek Kevin's counsel and prayers and to learn from him. Soon, a community began to form in this tucked away location in the wilds of Ireland. Like many of the Celtic monastic communities, it was a place of saints and scholars, work and commerce, refuge and prayer. Kevin still withdrew to his caves for long times of solitude with God, but he also became an influential leader of this new, growing community. A community that would flourish and welcome many for hundreds of years. In fact, 
as Christianity spread in Ireland, it didn't happen through political conquest, but rather through the sprouting from small communities like Glendala. The church and monks may have been at the geographical center, but there was typically a whole thriving small city with lay people in all professions and walks of life. And some who came for prayer and learning were then sent back to start their own communities. How about you? Have you experienced being welcomed into a community somewhat like Kevin's? In what ways have you been like the birds in Jesus' parable, finding a restful perch in the kingdom community? I want to take you on another walk around Glendalough now as we open ourselves to see how God might want to speak to us through his creation and our senses. Each year on Good Friday, one of the local ministries in Glendalough hosts a Stations of the Cross walk, a kind of mini pilgrimage where each station focuses on an event from Jesus' last day on earth before his resurrection. In Glendalough, they use creation in the enormous valley to experience the different stations. I was familiar with doing the Stations of the Cross from my childhood, but to do it out in creation and in community with other people on Good Friday elevated it to a whole new powerful level. When I went on this walk in 2018, dozens of us followed our guides through the valley, walking through Jesus' story together in community. Our guides had taken time to go before us, scouting out places where nature reflected an event from Jesus' last day. At one point, we were led to an open expanse of field. Looking across the exposed field, we reflected on Jesus' nakedness and exposure as he was whipped and hung on the cross. At another stop, there was a slab of stone with a gentle spring flowing over it like tears, and we stopped to remember the women weeping at the cross, their tears flowing like that spring. Later on, we came to a dead tree stump. Out of this lifeless stump, a tiny new branch had sprouted from it, representing the promise of life after death. This experience wove together the great story of Easter with Celtic attention to creation. So let's try something similar in the coming minutes and see how God's story 
may be communicated around you right now. First, I invite you to pause your walk for a moment. If you're in a place, you can do so. Take a few deep breaths in through your nose and out your mouth. Bring your awareness to all of your senses. Acknowledge briefly your eyes seeing, your ears hearing, your skin feeling, your nose smelling, and your tongue tasting. Wherever you are, whether in the middle of a city or suburb, farmland or a forest, notice God's creation around you. Whether you choose to start walking again or stay in the spot you've paused, we're going to try noticing now where the parable of the mustard seed is coming to life in nature today. Like the mustard seed started out small, look around you for something that is very small. It could be something that will one day grow larger than you find it today. But it doesn't have to be. Draw closer to whatever is catching your attention. This thing may be small, but what potential does it hold within it? It may be tiny, but what impact does it have on the other things living around it? Next, scan your environment for something that is in the process of growing to its full stature. Maybe it's a tree that appears to only be a few years old. Maybe someone is walking a puppy nearby. Whatever it is, consider what that object or creature needs in order to keep growing. Is there something or someone who is intentionally caring for it? What may be happening organically that helps it develop? Even at its current size, how does it affect or influence the other creation nearby? Turn your attention now to a plant or tree that has likely reached its full size. Draw closer to it if you can. What hospitality does this plant or tree provide today? Is it a plant where creatures can find food for themselves? Does it offer up nutrients that will be carried farther off to provide for many others? 
is it home to insects or birds or some kind of animal or even community shared among several of these kinds of creatures? Now, if it's possible, find a place where you can see your own reflection. This can be in the still water of a lake or a puddle, a window, or even the self-view of your phone's camera. I invite you to hold your own gaze to award your reflection the same attention that you just gave to nature. See yourself as a part of God's creation. What do you notice about how you fit into the community of creation around you at this moment? What impact is your environment having on you? What impact are you having on what surrounds you? How do you feel as you consider yourself this way, as part of God's community of creation? The flourishing of the mustard tree and the monastic community at Glendalock each invite us to imagine how the Holy Spirit is at work growing God's kingdom. These examples are hopeful and inspiring as we seek to be part of community that reflects the kingdom of heaven. Of course, these images of flourishing community can sometimes feel like unrealistic dreams, purely aspirational. The reality of community, even one that's grounded in Jesus, often feels far from the imagined ideal. So what does it take to experience the kind of community that flourishes like a thriving tree, with branches extending in service and hospitality? When it comes down to it, this sort of community requires daily choices to love in ways that are inconvenient, difficult, or tedious. It requires choosing to step into discomfort and choosing to make space for the most vulnerable. It's hard, it's gritty, it's uncomfortable, 
it asks of our time and as today's story will show us sometimes our bodies as well there's a particular story about kevin probably the most well-known story about him that illustrates the tension of saying yes for the sake of others in community on one of kevin's retreats into solitude legend says he was praying with his hands outstretched just beyond the opening of his little lakeside cave as he stretched himself into that posture of worship a blackbird landed in the palm of his hand. Kevin was so absorbed in prayer that he barely noticed as the little bird built a nest and then laid her eggs. When he did realize what happened, Kevin accepted these vulnerable, unexpected guests. The story says that he stayed there in that wearying position, his arms outstretched until the blackbird chicks were born. It takes almost two weeks for blackbird eggs to hatch. So by saying yes to hold space for this mama bird and her eggs, Kevin said yes to a stiff, aching body and yes to the interference and shift of his agenda. He didn't see the nest as a distraction from his prayer, but an extension of it. Just as his arms were extended fully to God in worship, he also extended them fully to support the fragile lives incubating in the nest in his palm. Imagine all the preparation Kevin went through in order for him to have the same discernment and sensitivity to say yes to two weeks of holding this posture. Some of us take on things that overextend us because we feel our own needs aren't important. But I don't think Kevin would have been able to offer himself this way if he wasn't already deeply filled by God. God called Kevin to leadership in the community but Kevin knew that to do this, he would still need solitude. Kevin followed the example of Jesus, who gave completely of himself and yet regularly stepped away from the crowds to spend time with his father. Kevin, too, would need to be filled by the God who loved and created him. In God's presence, his soul delighted and he could find nourishment and rest. With the knowledge he was supported and cherished by God, Kevin could say yes to this bird. Brimming with worship and prayer, Kevin could be to others how God had been to him. When we too have experienced our needs being met by God and others, it prepares us to better meet others' needs. When you consider your current season of life, how do you need to be filled and refreshed by God?
what would help prepare you to care for your community? Who could you ask to offer you support in order for you to find time to receive from God? Let's create some space to be filled and refreshed right now before we consider how we might care for others let's look to a psalm to let god meet our needs in psalm 84 the psalmist shows an awareness of their need and longing for god their desire to find themselves in god's community to dwell in the place where god dwells again we see a picture of God's welcome and hospitality, even for another bird and her eggs. Well, listen to the psalm twice through. As you hear it the first time, ask the Lord to help you notice if there's a particular word or phrase that stands out to you in regards to how you need God to fill you in this season of your life. Psalm 84 How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, they are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength, till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favour on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, the Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. As we listen a second time to Psalm 84, take the word or phrase you noticed and ask God what more it could show you about how God can provide what you need. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. 
Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, they are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength, till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look with favour on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favour and honour. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Two thousand years ago, a Jewish teenager named Mary was going about her day in a Galilean town when an angel appeared to her and told her that she would hold space in her body to birth a son. The child would be great. He would inherit the throne of King David and he would be called the Son of God. The angel told the young woman twice that she had found favor with God. He assured her that the Lord was with her as she played a small yet incredibly important part in the story of God's people. But saying yes to the role in the community of God would be costly for Mary. There is a physical cost to carrying and birthing a baby. She would be saying yes to the pain and discomfort of pregnancy and possible life-threatening risks during childbirth. There is an emotional cost to parenting and caregiving. It requires mental and emotional labor to love and meet the never-ending needs of someone vulnerable. But perhaps the biggest cost of saying yes to this was the potential social cost. Mary was unmarried. She was engaged, but had not yet been sexually intimate with a man. If her fiancé abandoned her once he learned she was pregnant, and even worse, not by him, she could end up destitute, disowned by her family, and unmarriageable. In a society where a woman's value and honor was determined by a man, Mary was incredibly vulnerable. And in the best case scenario, if her fiancé did choose to marry her, Mary would still face the sting of shame, rumors, and gossip. The birth would not be celebrated by her community when it happened it would be shrouded in shame. But Mary, in spite of these costs, said yes 
Mary, someone who was filled by God, could respond to the angel by saying, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me just as you have said. Mary responds with a song of worship. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. Mary's song of praise here in Luke 1 shows us how she recognized her yes to be just a small part of God's story. She locates her individual action within the whole community of God. Her worship reveals a profound understanding of who this God she worships is. This is a God who notices and thinks of her, a young, unmarried female, someone at the bottom of her society's hierarchy of worth, a God who has been mindful of the humble for generations and generations. This is not just about her. It's not just about how God is to her. This is about how God always is how God has been and will be to future generations. The God Mary worships is a God who performs mighty deeds, and these deeds have to do with a reversal of power dynamics, a reversal of who gets filled and who is sent away empty, a disruption of those with power, scattering the proud and dethroning rulers. The God Mary worships lifts the humble and satisfies the hungry. This God is merciful and remembers his promises. When we hear Mary's rich, fiery song of praise, well, it's no wonder that she said yes to this God. Mary, who didn't yet know all that God would do, was confident that her God fills those who are empty, and she could say yes to the part of service that she would play. She could locate herself within a community story, a community with a merciful, just God. And later, this son she bears, Jesus, who would also say yes to play his role in God's big story. And now we too can locate ourselves in the same community story. 
when God invites us to costly service and love, when God asks us to hold space to nurture life or growth, when God asks us to extend ourselves for the sake of those who are vulnerable, our yes echoes Mary's. I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me just as you have said. We too can say yes to the merciful God who fills the hungry and is mindful of those in low positions. We too can accept the cost and hold our arms out so long that something new can be birthed. So how is God inviting you to say yes? Is there an egg that has been placed in your hand? Perhaps unasked for? What will it look like for you to tenderly and compassionately care for this person or thing? Both Mary and Kevin say yes to extending themselves and holding space for the sake of new, vulnerable life in their community. In Mary's story, she begins in a low position and God sees her and shows her favor. Kevin, on the other hand, is invited to step downward into a supporting role. Looking at Kevin's story from this angle, we see that he is not only a man, but a high-positioned man at that. He is the founder and leader of the entire Glendalough community. He has many responsibilities and demands on his time. He is important. But in the Blackbird story, Kevin is not the one who is birthing something new. He is not the central actor. Kevin is holding up the mama bird, he plays the supportive role, the secondary role. He stretches himself out for this little bird and her work of incubating the vulnerable eggs. He chooses into his own inconvenience and discomfort to support her role. Often, we feel like we want to be the one hatching the egg. Instead, we see Kevin leading in a way that says, this is not about me, and accepting the humility necessary to play a secondary role. Kevin recognizes that being part of community involves setting aside our own ideas of what our roles should be so that we can accept whatever bird needs to roost in our palm. Jeremy Henders, whom we heard from in a previous walk, is back to share a story of when circumstances beyond anyone's control led her to step behind the scenes to support a community in crisis. It was late May, and I just finished a week of working at an university camp for college students. I was planning to spend the next week on vacation with friends, before my big summer trip to Ethiopia. 
leading students on a cross-cultural six-week service and learning program. I'd driven my parents' van to the InterVarsity camp the week prior to take more students with me. So my parents and I planned to exchange vehicles again in a parking lot halfway between our homes. Usually we'd spend a few hours together, have a meal, catch up. But in the state of Iowa that day, the weather forecast predicted some severe storms, and my parents didn't want to be out driving in them. So we exchanged keys, and as my mom gave me a quick hug, she said, be safe in the storms, and we were both off again on the hour drive to our respective homes. I had just gotten back to my place and had started doing laundry from camp when I got a call from my dad. I thought he must have forgotten to tell me something, so I answered, Hey, what's up? With a bit of excitement in my voice, eager for the week of vacation ahead. But his voice didn't match the ease and excitement of mine. He simply asked, Did you hear about Parkersburg? Parkersburg is my hometown, where my parents still live, and to where they should have just arrived home. I said, no, what? I literally saw him only an hour before, and then suddenly I could hear the shock in his voice as he said, it's gone. Parkersburg is gone. A tornado came through. The town is gone. I learned that after we'd said our quick hello and goodbye, my parents had also driven the hour it took to get to their home in Parkersburg. They put their van in the garage, went into the basement bathroom, and held onto a pipe as half my hometown blew away in one of the strongest, largest kinds of tornadoes that can be recorded. This wasn't a spindly twister that often first comes to mind when we think of tornadoes. It was a mile-wide wall of a tornado system with speeds upwards of 300 miles an hour. Everyone's life in my hometown had instantly changed. The worst is that lives had been lost, and homes and plans had, quite literally, blown away. All priorities suddenly shifted. I was grateful to already have the week off of work, and I would spend it in Parkersburg instead of on vacation, trying to be another set of hands to help. This town was where I'd grown up and was filled with the community that raised me and loved me and still supported me in my ministry with InterVarsity. I came up to Parkersburg the next morning with a group of people who'd brought trailers of resources to help. As we entered, I couldn't believe what I saw. I'd never been in such a crisis before. It looked like a war scene. My parents' house was right on the edge of the tornado's path, three houses down from the worst of it, and while there was plenty of external damage to their home, it somehow remained standing while most of their friends' houses were destroyed. My dad ran City Hall at the time, which was also completely destroyed. He was instantly focused on burials for those who'd lost their lives as well as the city's budget, trying to find a way for the town to not go bankrupt in the aftermath. My mom was working on storing her friend's salvageable items in our basement. As they were so busy doing other things, I had a moment to survey the situation with the volunteers that we personally knew who had arrived, 
And I found myself saying to my parents, let's use your house as a station for at least these carloads of volunteers who came up with me and with all our family members who are coming in. And so my parents' house became a hub where people could use a bathroom, where meals were served and supplies were delivered. It became a tiny base of operations for a couple dozen of the hundreds of volunteers that had flooded into town to offer a hand. There was a role for every single person to contribute something. Aunts and uncles, friends, mere acquaintances, and total strangers came to help. A cousin brought in water from a farm the first day when there was none in town. People brought generators for electricity and gas for vehicles. Without any street signs or landmarks left, I'd coordinate how we'd get someone from point A to point B to help with cleanup. I'd help figure out when and where people could shower. I had almost nothing to do with the larger rebuilding, and when I reflect on it, I did so very little to help in light of all the help that was needed that it's almost embarrassing to even share a story focused on my own experience. I'm not central to the story, and I played a secondary supportive role at best. The disaster was so enormous that I had to humbly accept the very temporary, very small role I played in contributing something to alleviate the severity of the damage and the number of people with deep needs. Yet still, even though my role was tiny, there really was a role for me to play. So I spent that vacation week helping in my hometown. And then I had to go. I couldn't stay to do more. Instead, I flew to Ethiopia where my responsibilities awaited me for the rest of the summer and where I wouldn't be able to hear regularly about what was continuing to happen in Parkersburg. My parents and our family friends were still in the thick of it. And God continued to invite and empower so many people to play their role, to show up and care for particular needs. Even those who'd lost everything found ways to help their neighbors in whatever small ways they could. It was fascinating to hear upon my return from Ethiopia how God had been caring for people during the storm and throughout the summer. I heard a story of a wife being lifted off the ground, parallel, telling her husband who was holding her that she couldn't hold any longer. She was about to blow away. And then she started praying, and suddenly her body came back down next to his. I heard of people choosing at the last minute to move from one corner of their basement to the other, and it ended up being the one area of the house that didn't entirely implode in on itself. I heard of my dad's mentor and friend losing everything. The stairs even to the basement had been sucked up, the pail he'd been sitting on gone, the hearing aid from his ear was gone but he'd felt such a pressure on his chest during the whole event, as though God was present holding him down, and he'd survived. Then we heard that of all he and his wife had lost, his wife had been saddest to lose a quilt that was a family heirloom. And then a farmer found it miles away in his field, torn but intact, and he so kindly returned it to Parkersburg. My dad recognized it and brought it over to this woman, 
delightfully surprising her as tears ran down her face. People in Wisconsin found articles from our little town in central Iowa, over a hundred miles away, and made sure to bring back what was identifiable. Stories like this abounded, and I was in awe of God. To witness God's care through miracles and through community members and the kindness of strangers who did their small parts too. The costs from that tornado were real, and some remain. Yet we experience the reality of what we often say in cliche ways, that big things become doable when everyone does their part. It's examples like Sheremy's and Kevin's that help me examine my own life and ask myself, who are the people in my community that I need to give that kind of attention, care, and dedication to? For Sheremy, it was her hometown. For many of us, God puts people in our lives who are fragile in some way, people who require great patience, people who need grace and forgiveness extended over and over. I have a family member who is in a hard situation right now, and my wife and I are trying to care for her, but it's not easy. It's actually quite emotionally draining, and it's been a reminder to me that caring for people, even in seemingly simple ways, can be costly. The situation reminds me again of how being a servant of Christ, being like Christ, requires dying to ourselves in terms of our own time, talent, physical comfort, or whatever the circumstances call for. Seeing these people through Kevin's lens, through Mary's servanthood, through Jesus' ultimate example on the cross, it makes me want to renew my commitment to provide the same kind of care for these people in my life, these tender birds in my hand, as Kevin provided for the blackbird's eggs to hatch. Sometimes the situations we face feel overwhelming and the enormity of people's needs is too much. If you're facing such circumstances now where you're feeling paralyzed or helpless to do anything, can you ask God to show you the particular thing, big or small, that he is inviting you to do? Can you take a step toward that something where God is inviting you to care and act? Other times when we face overwhelming needs, we can try to take upon ourselves more than what we actually should. There may be situations where you are carrying a burden of others' needs that is just too much. Or we could take on roles that are not actually ours to play. Are there things that you are taking on that God may want you to release? 
Or are there ways that God may want to invite others to share in the burden of care that you have said yes to? We're going to hear again from Cortland Hopkins, who blessed us earlier along our Celtic way with stories of Patrick, honored man. These stories are rewritten as gifts for the land from which they came and all who visit, even virtually like us. This time, he'll share a First Nations retelling of Kevin's encounter with his little winged friends. My friends, the Lakota people believe that we are all related. The Lakota phrase for this is mitakuye oyasin. The animals of the sky are the winged peoples. The animals on the ground are the four-leggeds. And we as human beings are the two-leggeds. We are in community with all of creation. As I tell the story, it may help to know that I will refer to the Apostle Peter as stands on the rock, Moses as drawn from the water, and the prophet Elijah as great spirit is creator. Later, after the coming of Honored Man, there was yet another follower of Creator Sets Free. His name was Handsome One, and he was born in abundant lands in a place called Meadow of the Shoeless. He came from a family that had many possessions and was very fortunate. And not only was his family rich, but his name was also true to his appearance, and he was very handsome. He was desired by many young women, and many young men surely would want what he had been given. But Handsome One was wise, probably remembering the story Creator Sets Free told about the wayward son. So Handsome One did not trust in fast and easy living. Instead, he must have spent much time meditating on the story of the rich young man who came up to Creator Sets Free and excitedly asked him about the path to life full of beauty and harmony, which would never fade nor come to a bad end. And who left Creator Sets Free very sad because Creator Sets Free told him to give away all his possessions to the poor and the needy and to follow him. Like the rich young man in the good story, Handsome One's family had many possessions, so Handsome One figured he would avoid the sadness of the young man with many possessions and took none of the inheritance he was owed. He would walk with the Chosen One, Creator Sets Free. Now that that was squared away, he began to look for a quiet place he could find to pray and to be with Creator Sets Free every moment. He found such a place in the Valley of Two Lakes. There, Handsome One built himself a place where he could seek a vision, where he could hear the mighty words of the Great Spirit and hear all the songs the earth makes. So he set himself up there to cry for a vision. Maybe he expected, since he had nothing and had given all of himself to Creator, that he would have an experience like drawn from the water, or Great Spirit is Creator, or when Creator sets free met both of them on the mountaintops and showed these message bearers, his sacred bright form. Handsome One was lifting up his hands in prayer, and a blackbird landed on his upraised hand. And since he was in prayer, he was sure that this was a sign. And he sat and watched the bird in awe, since wild birds do no such thing as landing on an upraised hand, 
or even coming close to people. Then, what must have been a great shock to handsome one, was the bird started laying out twigs and other things for a nest. Handsome one's arms were getting sore, but he dared not drop the bird nor its nest. Soon the nest was complete, and handsome one thought maybe he could move the nest from his upraised hands and relieve the agony. However, he fell asleep, and he saw that the blackbird had laid her eggs in the nest. The mother blackbird was so beautiful, and soon handsome one started praying blessings for Mama Blackbird and her eggs, who hatched after some time. Handsome One watched them grow, and his heart felt for the chicks as they hatched, as Mama fed them, as they approached the edge to fly, and when they did, and took off into the sunny skies, his arms finally dropped and he wept, not tears of grief or pain, but with great joy. He realized the vision he had received. He had seen creation as Creator had, with love and great pain. What blessings from seeing this truth he had felt. We are not alone, and life is not a warlike world defined by tooth and claw, but is a good story that begins and ends with joy, created by one who is love. Handsome One has many tales, and I am sure they are all true in one way or another. We need to listen to the good stories of Creator Sets Free, and the people like Handsome One, to help us in the world that is full of pain, sadness, and fear. We need to hear the stories as such, not as texts for dissection, or as fables for the weak-minded, but as words of the great storyteller, who is trying to tell us the truth to soothe our hearts and begin our healing. Tom Sharp, who pioneered the Journey Ireland pilgrimage within a varsity study abroad ministry, experienced this way of seeing creation through the eyes of Creator in a site where Kevin was known to worship and pray in Glendalough. In 2015, I'd arrived in Ireland earlier than the study abroad students who'd be joining me on a week-long pilgrimage there. So I had the privilege of some extra time on my own in Glendalough. One afternoon, I hiked over to the upper lake, looking for a way to get to a cave called Kevin's Bed. Before climbing the ridge, I had to depart the trail, with a sign warning of dangerous steep terrain to be entered at one's own risk. I carefully made my way across the ridge, down the steep slope, and slid myself into a four-foot diameter hole in the rock face. It was just deep enough for me to fully stretch out. I lay still for a while, feeling the cool stone against my back. The mountain air seemed to embrace me. The Celtic tradition frequently emphasizes spaces like this, where the veil between heaven and earth feels a little thinner the spiritual world a little more tangible. Kevin's bed was certainly one of these thin spaces, and I soon felt my whole self, mind, body, and spirit, 
encounter the presence of God in a way I'd never experienced before. I had no words, just the feeling of receiving something like a divine embrace. The silence and solitude seemed to heighten my physical and spiritual senses. Though I was by myself, I noticed that I was not alone. Not too far, I saw deer slowly moving through the valley, a mountain goat making its path up the slope on the other side of the water. The occasional squirrel darted about its business, causing me to notice tree branches gently swaying and the smell of pine in the air. I even noticed ripples below me on the lake and the way the clouds subtly changed the pattern of sunlight over everything. I was struck by the thought that I was witnessing nothing short of a cosmic dance with God as the master choreographer. Each element of creation around me played a small but not insignificant part. Then I realized it has always been this way. God's divine purpose, not random motion, slowly playing out over millennia. And it always will be like this too. Everything is dynamic and harmonious dance, bending toward a final act of total union with God. As a middle-aged, Ivy League-educated, white male leader, my heart is too often caught up in my own dreams for impact. I wonder too often whether my work and life matters. Staying busy keeps me distracted from hearing the quiet soundtrack on repeat in my soul. Do you measure up? Does your work really make a difference? Is it really worth it in the end? But in the solitude of Glendalock, my own words and thoughts were quieter so that I could hear the divine chorus around me. This experience remains with me to this day. Somehow the realization of my own smallness was freeing. My worth is not connected to bigness or impact, however noble that impact may be. And yet, at the same time, there's comfort that my smallness does have a part to play, a part joined with creation in harmony. As I sat in that cave and rested in the embrace of my creator, I could let go of my self-evaluations and comparisons to others. After all, even the needles of pine trees swaying in the breeze contributed just as important a role in God's cosmic production as anything I could say or do in a lifetime. I still struggle with my own purpose and worth set in visions of grandeur, but this moment remains an invitation to return to the simple truth that I have a small but not insignificant part reserved just for me in the glorious expansive dance of God's universe. As our walk comes to a close, may you know the smallness and the significance of your place in God's creation. May you experience the loveliness 
of God's dwelling place as the branch upon which you rest and renew your strength. And then, filled by God, may you be blessed to live out your part in community, extending to others the care that Jesus has given you.